Hey there, and welcome to the Oxano Podcast. Oxano is a worship service for college students and young adults that takes place weekly during the school year at Dawson Family of Faith. If you're ever in Birmingham, Alabama on a Tuesday night, we hope you'll join us as we worship through song, prayer, and the Word. Thanks for listening. All right, what's going on, everybody? How are we doing? Doing okay? Hope you guys had a good Labor Day and can rest from... Uh, hard two weeks of school. Really needed that break, right? Um, so look, hey, if you are new with us, my name is Cole, uh, Cole Griffith. We have another Cole, Cole Fryer, sitting right over there. It can be kind of confusing. I've never met so many Coles in my life, but here we are, all here together. Um, but look, if you're new with us, uh, I'd love to say hey, love to get a chance to meet you, love to introduce myself and hear a little bit about your story. Um, and if you are new with us tonight, we are in the middle of a series about the woes to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, and then we've entitled this series, Rebuilding Religion. And if you remember from last week, we began by looking at Jesus's mission, his objective, his goal, which is pretty simple. On the one hand, it's to tear down, to deconstruct, to destroy everything that, about the religion of the scribes and the Pharisees that has been ruined, that has been tainted, that has been obscured by all of their efforts to make it about them, and to rebuild this religion to a pure and blameless form, but built on the cornerstone who is Christ and who is his life and his teaching. And so that's where we'll be at tonight. We're going to be uh, in verse 16, so we're jumping ahead a few uh, woes, if you will, to the third woe, uh, which is this woe to the Pharisees about the temple, about oaths, and about promises. And so tonight we are talking about talking, talking about our words, talking about the words that we give to one another, the words that we receive, but we're talking about a specific type of word. We're talking about promises and how so often people leverage promises and to achieve things that they want in their life. They leverage promises and take them away because a promise is something that you can build your future on. So we'll look at what Jesus has to say to the scribes and the Pharisees tonight in Matthew 23. And so before we begin tonight, I want to pose a question for us to consider together. And the question is pretty simple. It's, does our words, or do our words, verb, subject, agreement, do our words, does your word mean anything? Does your word mean anything? Is it solid? Is it valuable? Does it have a weight to it? Or is it empty? And this is the question I think Jesus is calling us to consider. And the reason being is because we live in a world that is saturated with words. If you think about it from a pure and simple, like, supply and demand economic framework, right, today in this day of our Lord, 2023, right, we probably have never come across more words than in the history of humanity. We are subjected to more words on a given day than any other person who has ever Live and tomorrow will be more than today, and the next day will be more than tomorrow, and on and on and on it goes, right? In the 2009, the New York Times published an article entitled The American Diet, 34 gigabytes per day. Look at me being computer science, gigabytes, 34 of them. And what that means is if you equate it down, that's 100,000 words. So in 2009, the average person consumed 100,000 words every single day. That means every day you are reading a wuthering heights load of commercials, right? 
Every single day, you're reading The Prisoner of Azkaban on Instagram. Every single day, you are downloading To Kill a Mockingbird to your brain in the form of conversation, Twitter, Instagram, homework, reading, emails, what have you. We are overwhelmed and consumed by words. We live in a world that is like word-bombed. We are like, oh my gosh, another word, right? And the reason being is because all of these words ask something of us. They are calling us to make a decision, whether it's to buy something or to sell something, to love something, to hate something, to agree with something, to disagree with something, to give a yes or a no. And so we are overwhelmed and just berated with words. And it's no re- there's no guessing why we live in such an age of anxiety. There is an anxiety to these decisions we have to make. So our words have never meant less. Our words have never been more detached from the daily experience of our lives. Cole, what do you mean? Our words have become so abstract that they barely have any meaning. George Orwell, he was a writer and author in the 20th century, and he wrote a lot concerning about the political situation of that time. And he wrote in 1946, the whole tendency to modern English is away from concreteness. And that might sound like, you know, a lecture from your English class. But what that means is, is that language has a goal. The goal of language is to capture images with words. hey we are, <laughs> some technical difficulties, some images, right? So language, right? Here we go. So the whole goal of language is to capture images that we see and experience in life and to pass that on through our words as a way of survival, right? So if you're like a caveman back in the day and you're like, hey, did you see that guy who had a big rock? I saw him kill somebody. And you're like, what? No way. He killed somebody with a rock, right? You have an image in your mind right, of an experience that you may or may not have lived, but you can formulate it in your mind. It's concrete. It's definite. It means something. But in modern English, in the world that we live, our whole tendency has to move away from those concrete images to things that are abstract, right? We talk about love, generosity, right, feelings, these, these vibes, right? We're more interested in passing vibes than we are passing images. And the whole reason is because we can hide in our abstract language. We can hide in our fluffy talk, right? And we like to hide because it's easier to identify and to separate and categorize people according to their words, right? It's easier to talk in abstracts because you can go, oh, so-and-so said this word, so that designates they're on this team, and so-and-so said this other word, which kind of designates maybe they're on this other team, right? And we'd like to categorize and shuffle people up according to their abstract language. More than that, and you probably all would agree with this, is that we are devoted to fluff. Now, Cole, what are you talking about? Who has ever, like, been 300 words shy of a word count? right, in a paper. Yeah, right? What do you do? The, sh- the, the rock rolled down the hill. The monumentous boulder bound and leaped down the rocky, you know, hill, I guess. I don't know. And you just, like, elevate that thing to the max, right? You just, like, cram it full of random words, all saying the same thing that you could have said simply. I remember when I was in school, I had this professor who he did not play. 
<laughs> he is mean. And he would take my papers, and he gave me one paper back, man, and this thing was like dripping, right? It looked like, you know, a pig in a like meat locker, right? Just like dripping down. And I was just like, oh my gosh, what in the world was wrong with this thing? And he tore that thing to shreds. He hated it. And the reason he hated it is because he saw through my game, right? He saw through my flowery language, my elevated prose, my fancy speech. And he said this, and I'll never forget it. He said, one day you're going to have to risk being understood. One day you're going to have to risk being understood. See, we use language to cloud up our meanings. We use language to cloud up things so that we can hide and not be known. But ultimately, at the end of the day, all this really serves to do is cloud up our own thinking. So again, in the words of Orwell, he says, look, if, if language can corrupt thought, well, then it's equally true that thought can corrupt language. And so our whole tendency to abstractness, our whole tendency to hide in these flowery language only complicates and confuses us when we want to say something that matters. Okay, so not only have our words meant less, right? Not only have they been more detached from real life, but never have our words meant less for our wives. I remember one time I was having dinner with a friend of mine, and he was like, yo, can I bring my cousin? I was like, sure, whatever. You know, I thought it was going to be just us, but, you know, it's fine, whatever, broken promise, it's cool. Um, and he brought his cousin, man, and he seemed like a cool guy, and we sat down, he goes, yo, what's up, my name is so-and-so. And I was like, oh, cool, what's up, like, what do you do for your work? I was like, oh, yeah, I, I like, work in Washington, D.C., I was like, oh, what? No way. That's so cool. Washington, D.C., right? And so he was this important dude, right? He worked on the Hill. He's like Hamilton in a lot of rooms, a lot of things happening, right? He is like an important dude. And literally within, like, I kid you not, 30 seconds, he goes, I'm like, yeah, man, my name's Cole or whatever. He's like, oh, that's cool. Uh, so, like, are you pro-life or pro-choice? And I was like, uh, what? Excuse me? Uh, I thought we were just hanging out, having dinner, right? And as I reflected on that, man, I discovered a truth that for him, for so many people, our words are detached from reality. Our words have no bearing on what we actually are involved with in our life. See, for that guy, and I'm not, you know, like talking bad him or whatever, but like for him, he was so entrenched in the game that these issues, these words that stood for these issues had no real bearing. They had no real weight. They had no real consequence for his actual life. It was all about the game. He wanted to know how to talk to me, what words to use on me so that he could win my favor and advance his own social, political self-interest. And so our words have never meant less. Our words have never been more detached from the things that they are used to describe, and our words have never had less implication for the lives that we live. And so what I want you to see tonight is that this is our situation. This is the society. This is the water that we swim in. But this age of noise, this cacophony of sound, this symphony of annoyances is very, very similar to the song that the Pharisees are singing in Matthew 23. The Pharisees and the scribes are using cloudy language, and they are using their cloudy language to develop a system of religious complexity, all in order to deceive 
their people and to conceal their self-interest. The scribes and the Pharisees are using a system of cloudy language and complex religion to deceive and to conceal the things that they want. But tonight, as we'll see in just a moment, is that the way of Jesus is one of simplicity. The way of Jesus is one of simplicity. God's Spirit guides us in a simple life. So, looking back, so we have two major divisions in our text, right? So we have verses 16 through 19. This is Jesus identifying the problem of what the religious leaders have concocted in their religious system. And then we have his response, okay? So we got the problem, we got the response. We're going to dive in now to the problem. So look back with me in verse 16. There Jesus says, Woe to you blind guides who say if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, well, then he is bound to his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, well, then it really doesn't matter. It's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred. The scribes and the Pharisees have developed a system of religious complexity. Scholar Frederick Bruner, whose commentary has been very helpful to me as we've been developing this series, he calls this system of religion tricky religion. And what he means by that is they have set up a system that knows too much, that is devoted to useless and arcane facts, and is entirely based upon their stature of religious leaders. They are uh, creating rules for thee, but not for me. Rules for other people, but not for themselves. And so you see an example of that here, right? So if anyone wants to make a promise, if anyone wants to make an oath, and they want to hold up something uh, to bind them to that promise, right? Well, if you do it to the temple, that's, you know, you can do that, but it really doesn't matter. So don't be surprised if someone breaks that promise. But if you do it by the gold in the temple, well, now you are bound. You better come through on your promise. And so what Jesus is identifying here is he's talking about oaths. Right? And oaths might sound like a foreign concept to us, right? We don't, you know, go around being like, I swear on my mom's grave or whatever. Maybe you do. It's kind of weird if you do. But it doesn't have any real significance and bearing in our life because we don't live in a verbal society. We have paper accessible to us, and it's very cheap, which was not necessarily the case in this time. And so an oath is a verbal contract, it's an agreement that two parties make in the hearing of a third, and that third party, they have ceded their right so that third party can hold them accountable to, over, to coming through on their promise, right? And so, you know, I used to work, believe it or not, in construction, okay? And my whole job was to, like, call people and, like, do contracts, and I would just get, like, cussed out on the phone and all this, like, fun, awesome stuff. Um, anyway, so let's say, like, just hypothetically, you want to build a house, right? And you need some drywall, and you can't do it. And so you go find a drywall guy, you sign a contract, and the contract says this, like, yo, look, you're going to help me build my house. I'm going to pay you this amount of money to do this job. You're going to do it well, and you're going to do it by this amount of time. And if you fail to do that, well, then you owe me a bunch of money, right? I'm going to take you for all you're worth, <laughs> right? But the contract also says, hey, if the builder, you know, skips out on the drywall guy after he's done all this work, well, now the drywall guy is entitled to a bunch of money from 
the builder, right? It's an agreement that is enforced by a third party. And so the money that would go to either the builder or the drywall guy in this situation is what Jesus is identifying here as collateral. Okay? Collateral is that piece of the contract that you have to pay out if you don't live up to your promises. It's the loss that you're willing to stomach. It's the thing that you are willing to lose. And so as we look back to the first half of, Jesus, of, our, of our text here, what is Jesus identifying is the collateral. What are these scribes and Pharisees willing to lose? It's the temple. It's the altar. How is it that these religious leaders who are charged and tasked with defending these institutions, with honoring these traditions, with preserving the integrity of these things and teaching them to the people. How is it that they are the ones who are first to sell these things, to offer them up as collateral so that they can advance their personal agendas, so that they can advance their self-interest? How do these spiritual leaders go from leaders to spiritual salesmen? And the answer is what we said before. They have used tricky games, cloudy language, and religious complexity to hide and to conceal their self-interest. They have played games with these institutions and all to the point where it is now beginning to cloud their own judgment. It's beginning to blind their own eyes. And Jesus calls them blind guides three times for this very reason. See, the scribes and the Pharisees have set up a system where they know more, they know better, and they are the only ones who know it. I imagine that the scribes and the Pharisees might say, right, if someone came up to me and be like, yo, like, how come you get to like, break your promises but I don't? They would be like, oh, man, like, look, if you only knew how hard our job is, right? If you only knew the spiritual and emotional and just like physical toll it is to be like the leader for you people, then you would totally understand that every once in a while we are entitled to some indulgences. Every once in a while we deserve like a little treat for ourselves for how hard we're working for God. Every now and again, right, God totally overlooks our wrongdoing because he understands just how hard it is to be in this position, to have this job, and he wants us to be able to blow off some steam every now and again. And so it's totally fine if we break our promises every now and again, but like you guys really don't. You can't do that because you're not like us, right? I imagine if someone came up to them and was like, yo, like how come you get to break your promises? They'd be like, oh, no, 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 no. Like, you, don't, you don't know better? Right? See, if you, if you knew better, right, if you knew the truth about humanity, if you knew the truth about your human condition, if you knew the truth about human desire or happiness or sexuality or gender, right, all these hot-button issues, if you knew the truth of what promises actually are, right, promises are these tools of oppression that are meant to, to keep you chained up to people's expectations. They're supposed to keep you chained up to your own shame, right? If you would only know the liberation that it takes, that it feels like, right, to be freed from these things, if you only knew better, then you would understand that promises are made to be broken. Promises are the things that stand in the way from you discovering who you truly are. And so you're entitled to break these things if you only knew better. I also imagine that if someone came to the scribes and the Pharisees and they're like, look, how come you guys get to do it? Like, look, if you only knew, it's us, right? 
If you only knew the experts, if you only were smart like us, if you only understood what the experts say about these matters, if you only knew what the wise men and the prophets, right, the influencers, the smart people, your professors, right, if you only knew what the Sartes and Foucaults and Nietzsche's of the world had to say about these things, right, you would understand that if you could just buy into their social vision, right, if you could just buy into the progressive vision for humanity, then you would know that we are the ones who are on top, we are the ones who are in charge, and if you just get on board with us, then this world honestly should already be perfect by now. But it's you who are holding this back. If you only knew more, if you only knew better, and if you only knew that we are the experts who get to access this kind of knowledge, then you would understand that we are entitled to break our promises whenever we so choose. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 1, he says, knowledge puffs up. Knowledge puffs up. And so what Jesus is setting out to do in this first half of our text this evening is he is setting out to ask the piercing, needling, annoying question. And it's a question of accounting. And he asks it twice. He says, well, you tell me, which is greater? Which is greater? Is it the gold or is it the temple? Is it the altar or is it the gift. And what Jesus has set out to do with this question is burst their bubble. Right? I was looking for the metaphor to use for this, right? He's he's like the nagging doubt, right? He's just like that thought you can't shake and he's bringing it in their faces. He's like the the old SNL like Debbie Downer, right? They're all having fun at a party and she goes, "Man, this is great, but we're all going to die one day," right? He is the fly in the ointment, so to speak, right? He is the one who is bringing before their mind's eye the hard truth that this world might not be based on the assumptions that you think it is. Because what have the scribes and Pharisees erred in? They have made a wrong assumption. They've assumed that because they work for God, because they do awesome things for God, because they labor so intensely for God, that God will be there for them despite the horrible things that they do. That God will remain in the temple even if they don't care about it. That God will continue to bring fellowship with them through the altar even if they've disregarded it. And so Jesus is asking them to reevaluate. Are you sure? Are you sure? Do you ever think that God just might come one day and collect on the thing that you've made collateral? Do you think that God ever might make you pay. And so our second half, this is Jesus' response. He brings up the matter of God's judgment. And this is a theme that we have introduced last week, and it's a theme we'll continue to talk about in the woes of the Pharisees, because it runs all throughout, and it's this question of God's justice. And we often don't like to talk about God's justice, right? God's judgment, God's justice, it makes us a bit uncomfortable. But what I want you guys to see tonight is that if there is no justice, then there is no rules. If there is no judgment, then there is no law. If there is no accountability, then there is no such thing as collateral. And this is what Jesus is trying to bring before the Pharisees and bring before us. So look with me back at verse 20. There Jesus says, Whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. 
And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. The scribes and the Pharisees have been conducting business as if there were no greater accountability. They've been writing bad checks and thinking they can just get away with it. And so the question that Jesus asks is like, what happens if the IRS comes knocking, right? What happens when the institution that's keeping your receipts calls you on it? See, if there is no judgment, if there is no accountability, if there is no institution, if there is no uh, being, person, institution, watching the behaviors of these people, whether because God's not there or he doesn't care, then the reality is that the, the scribes and the Pharisees are, are right. They can do whatever they want. They can manipulate their promises. They are justified to break all the words that they've made. They are correct to connive and to scheme people out of their goodwill because if there is no judgment, if there is no justice, if there is no moral framework or orientation to this world, then who's to say that anything is wrong? Who's to say if there's no such thing as right side up that anything is upside down? See, if we are free from God's judgment, then we are free to live in a formless and void world. If we are free from God's judgment, we are free from right and wrong. We're free from all morality. We're free to kill or to be killed. We're free to exploit others or to suffer at the hands of their exploitation. We're free to live or to die. And it's up to you. Talk about an anxious life. If it's up to you, then if you're weak, if you're poor, if you're sick, then you're out of luck. If there is no judgment, the only rule is that there are no rules. The only law is the law of the jungle. So Friedrich Nietzsche, he is a uh, German philosopher in the last couple hundred years, and he calls a spade a spade. He calls it bluntly. He says the truth about our moral condition if there is no judgment when he says this. He says, when one gives up the Christian faith, one pulls the right to Christian mor morality out from under one's feet. That is, any notion of justice, any charity for the weak, any thought of things really ought not be this way. Christianity, according to Nietzsche, is a system and by <clears throat> a whole view of things that is thought out together and by breaking one main concept of it, that is the faith in God, one breaks the whole. See, it stands or it falls with faith in God. Nietzsche calls it correctly when he says, if there is no judgment, if there is no God, if there is no accountability, then morality itself is a contradiction in terms. If there is no moral institution that overlooks and judges human behavior, then there is no such thing as justice. Again, if there is no framework for right side up, right side up and upside down, then how could anything be wrong? And so if this is our lot in life, if this is the situation that we inhabit, then break your promises. Eat or be eaten because tomorrow we die. But if there is a judgment, if there is accountability, if there is a ledger, if there is an institution, if there is a being 
that speaks. If there is a God who gives a word, if there is reckoning for our collateral, the things that we have put up that we're comfortable to lose, well, then our word means something. If there is a judgment, then our words do matter in a sea of overwhelming noise. If there is a judgment, then our words do bear forth on our world. They do attach to our reality. If, our, if there is a judgment, then our words ought be the thing that bind us to certain behaviors. If there is a judgment, then our words matter. Every word then becomes a promise. Every simple yes and no becomes a pledge of right behavior in the moral framework of the universe that God has made. And how much we live into that will be on display. If there is a judgment, there is no more room for games. There is no more room for cloudy language. There is no more room for hiding in the religion of complexity because everything we do matters infinitely. And one day, God will hold us to account. One day, he will call us on our receipts. And so the question is, does God speak? What is God's word? Is there good news? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes, there is good news. See, the author of Hebrews, he says, in the very opening verses, he says, long ago, in many times, in many ways, God spoke to the Israelites through the prophets. But now, today, he speaks to us through his Son. In Christ, God has given an answer. In Christ, God has given a firm yes and no. The Anabaptist Confession of Faith in 1527 says this, Christ says, let, no speech or <clears throat> let your speech or your word be yes and no, which cannot be understood in such a way as, it, as if he had permitted oaths. Christ is simply yes and no, and all those who seek him sincerely will understand his word. See, Jesus is the Debbie Downer who brings reality to the party. He's the fly in the ointment, but this hard truth is the thing that heals us. He is the fly in the ointment, but he is also the balm for our souls. He is the condemnation of cloudy language because he is the clear word. And the clear word is this, Christ is both yes and no. See, yes, sin has a cost. Sin has consequence. And no, we are not righteous. Not one of us can stand before God and say we're good. No. Yes, sin will be the death of us. And yes, we are dead in our trespasses and our sins. But no, God has purposed that he will not let death have the final word on our story. No, sin cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood will not inherit what is holy and sacred. But God says yes to us and that he will rise us again in Christ. Death does not have the final word on our story, but resurrection does. Christ is God's yes and his no for us. God says your collateral will cost, and it costs Jesus. Jesus took the payment for our collateral, for the thing that we were willing to lose. He made right our payments. He paid our debts. He is God's yes and God's no. And so as we enter into a time of reflection, time of 120 seconds, is your life one of simplicity. God's Spirit guides us into a simple life. And maybe you find yourself 
caught up in word games. Maybe you find yourself caught up in empty promises. Maybe you're afraid to be understood. Maybe you're afraid that if you give a simple, pure, simple and pure yes or no, that people will take advantage of you, that you'll be eaten by someone who doesn't believe in God's judgment. So my invitation for you tonight is to to repent and believe the truth that God is more interested in making your life something amazing and awesome and cool and wonderful and blessed. See, God is working all things together for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So would you trust that you can give, you can afford to give a simple yes or no? Maybe you are caught in the confines of complex religion. Maybe you are, your whole basis of understanding God is plumbing his depths. Maybe you're committed to figuring out every ounce of theology you possibly can. Maybe you just want more and more information to just sit in your brain. Maybe your discipleship is only about deep conversations. Maybe you need to hear Jesus' invitation tonight. Who himself only does what he sees in the Father. And his invitation is clear. Would you repent of your complexity and come and embrace simple religion, which is loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself? Would you lay down your knowledge? Would you lay down your puffing up attempts at self-interest? And would you love God and love your neighbor? And so reflect on these things. Take 120 seconds. And God give us grace to help us do just that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, Lord, thank you for your word. God, your word is hard. Lord, your word is often sharpening. Your word is challenging for us, God. And your word often hurts. God, your word is like peeling back a scab to put medicine on it, God. It is painful, it is unpleasant, and it can be sometimes uh, unwanted. But God, it is the only thing that can heal us. So God, I pray tonight for these students, Lord, I pray that you would give them eyes to see and ears to hear. God, that we give them a heart of humility to understand what you are speaking to them, God, as, as God's the Father's yes and no to us in Christ. So Lord, we love you. We thank you for these things. It's your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Oxano Podcast. If you're interested in the songs that we sing, you can find us on Spotify at Oxano Songs We Sing. If you have more questions about what it means to follow Jesus or about next steps in following him, please email us at connect at dawsonchurch.org. We'll see you next week.